Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 153, all about metabolic flexibility and the new age of keto. (laughs) This is a fun topic that I talk about all the time. And really in today's episode, I'm going to unpack my perspective of what makes something keto or not. Hint, there's really not a guideline like that. (laughs) And we're going to talk about where I see keto going in order for it to be a sustainable movement and also a protocol or a diet approach that creates sustainable outcomes. Yes, I know we are always explaining and re-explaining anytime we post a new recipe that, um, you know, things can be keto, even if they include a little bit of banana or a date or some honey. Um, and as you know, our platform continues to grow, I think this is just going to be a constant learning curve that we're kind of up against. I got a comment recently on a blog post that was like, Oh, these muffins look great, but they're not keto. It's our blueberry lemon muffins because they had a little bit of honey in them. To make them keto, replace with erythritol. And I was like, mm, <laughs> no, no, no. Clearly you didn't even read the like little bit on food as medicine at the top where we talk about why we don't use any of those crappy non-caloric sweeteners. But anyway. And what is metabolic yes. <laughs> flexibility and all these things. That's what we're going to unpack today. Yes, and exactly. so I'm, I'm very excited about it. If I had a dollar every time I get tagged in an image of one of my recipes that's been murdered yep. <laughs> with a yep, non-caloric sweetener, <laughs> I won't reshare those guys. I love you, but I just can't. It's not anymore in my opinion, food as medicine. So before we get rocking, let's have some love for our opening sponsor, CrowdCow. So CrowdCow delivers the very best craft meat from the farm directly to your table. You know the breed, the style, and you actually get to virtually meet the small independent farmers and ranchers who produce your beef so you know where your meat is coming from, which is so, so important. And you can pick the exact cuts, quantity and have it delivered straight to your door when you want it. You don't have to sign up for one of these subscription boxes that shows up when you forget to cancel it and are out of town. Nothing worse than a box of soggy rancid meat at your doorstep. (laughs) 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 An unplanned adventure. It's happened many times to me. (laughs) So crowd cow features a hundred percent grass fed, grass finished, pastured and optional grain finished beef. So you can kind of choose whatever works for your choice, your taste, and your health-related goals. And they have anything from dry-aged ground beef, which is life-changing. It's amazing texture and flavor profile in their dry-aged ground beef, all the way to high-end A5 Wagyu from Japan. So you can select as 
known craft meats from Crowd Cow of really high quality, high integrity, and really kind of like boutique product that you would not be able to get even in the finest steakhouse steakhouses across the country. So that's a really cool attribute. And then the fact that you're pulling that farmer, that ranch direct to your table and voting with your dollar and decentralizing the meat production is an added benefit. So go on over to crowdcow.com slash naturally nourished. That's how you let them know that you found out about them through me and the Naturally Nourished podcast. And you will get $25 off as well as free shipping. So again, that's crowdcow.com backslash naturally nourished. Yes. And while you're over there, check out Allie's Keto Bundle, which features several of the different cuts of meat that she uses on a regular basis. So I think you've got uh, a pork roast for carnitas in there, some dry aged ground beef, and maybe some pasture raised chicken thighs. Pasture raised bone and skin on chicken oh, yeah. thighs. That's right. That's the way we like to do it. And then I think there might even be another, another like sirloin steaks or ribeyes. I forget, but go on over there. That's under Allie Miller Naturally Nourished Bundle at crowdcow.com. Awesome. So before we get into today's topic a little deeper, let's give a quick update on book tour because I know there have been some slight tweaks to just the timeline of things. Nothing major, guys. Don't freak out. Uh, but It's happening. Yeah, it's happening. <laughs> slight tweaks to timeline and some really exciting events that are continuing to evolve. So let's just give a, a sneak peek. Yeah. So by the time this episode goes live, we will have everything updated at AllieMillerRD slash events. So you can go over there and you can get a full list of all of my book signing stops. But we are I'm going to be kicking off in Seattle. Um, initially, I had two Austin dates that I've had to bump later in the calendar because the book, I think, is going to come out a couple days past September 17th. That was the set date. So those of you guys that have pre-ordered, it will come to you as soon as it can. And it is being printed as we speak. Like I can hear those printers and feel their warmth of generating all those pages of deliciousness. Um, but it is rocking and rolling and you will all have it in your hands by, you know, before the end of September for certain. So my first events are going to be in Seattle. I think it's divine intervention because I kick off the tour at Bastyr, which is the naturopathic college of medicine that I did my undergrad at and really the foundation of a lot of my food as medicine curriculum. So I'll be lecturing to students there, but also I'll have a public lecture at noon on the 3rd of October. Then I will be going to Marlene's Market, which is uh, in the SeaTac area, Seattle-Tacoma area, and I will be lecturing and doing a class there and a book signing. We have some awesome book tour sponsors. So we have Further Food on board. We have F-Bomb and we have Bonafide Provisions. And at all of the stops, you will get goodies from all three of my book tour sponsors. And at some of the stops, we'll even be setting up like a pop-up uh, bone broth bar and so much more fun. So we'll have details in all of the Eventbrite links. Um, after Seattle, I'll be doing the event in Portland uh, at a Pilates studio, uh, partnering up to do Elevé, uh, which is a movement. Um, and we'll be doing the Elevé uh, movement as well as anti-anxiety diet book signing there. And then I go down to San Francisco, uh, where some details are still coming into fruition there. So I'll leave that all as a surprise. Have some awesome events in Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, of course, 
Houston, and New York City. So all fun things. And I think we're filling up. I'm still right now looking for one more spot to add on in San Francisco and one more in New York City. So if you hear this, it's possible I might still be looking. So feel free to shoot an email to info at AllieMillerRD.com, especially if you have a personal relationship. Because I've gotten like 10 suggestions for Who Kitchen. So you guys at Who Kitchen, if you're listening to this episode, I'd like to come in New York. <laughs> and I will shoot them an email. But I don't know if, if they know who I am or care. But we'll see. We'll see. Yes. If you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, give us the hookup. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're a regular there, that always helps. Yep. If you eat there all the time, to be like, there's this woman who's really smart and I listen to her podcast. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Okay. Um, so on today's topic of how keto will evolve in the future, um, I know we covered why you hate non-caloric sweeteners back in episode 89, which is one that I continue to push to just about anyone who, you know, like you said, butchers a recipe by, <laughs> let me just sub that honey for stevia or erythritol or something else. Um, we are sending that episode out all the time. And then you covered this in the anti-anxiety diet cookbook. There's a whole section and a table on whole food sweeteners and their benefits and, and, you know, various applications of use. And then you just did a new IGTV on this topic. So I don't want to, you know, dwell on this for too long, but let's just cover the the top five. You just got to. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) have to do it again. Just, Just seeming like it. Yes. And, uh, Absolutely. So the the big reasons why I hate non-caloric sweeteners, uh, the first one is that they are not a whole real food, right? So even in consideration, so obviously things that are chemically created like saccharin, right? And, and some of those chemical non-caloric sweeteners, I think most people in any wellness space, including the keto community, are pretty easy to say, yeah, probably shouldn't have aspartame, which has been shown to deplete glutathione and antioxidant, or right, maybe I shouldn't have saccharin or sucralose or some of these sweeteners. But what's wrong with stevia? What's wrong with monk fruit? What's wrong with allulose, right? So my answer would be, with exception of a green leaf of stevia, all of those sweeteners uh, are really not going to be a whole food. And so what a whole food is something that you can imagine growing, all of its edible parts are still intact, and you can understand what's been done to it since harvest, and likely you could make that food yourself. So taking something like honey, which is, you know, pulled out of a comb or even consumed with the comb on a good cheese board or tapping maple syrup direct from a tree and not filtering it or using a date where you're just opening up and pulling out that pit uh, and chopping that up into a recipe or a banana, right? These are, we can basically imagine them all growing. We can see all of their edible parts and we can understand the process that it went through to get into the dish. Now, Stevia being a green leaf, right, in that form, if you're growing in your garden, stevia, or in your planter by your window, that would be a semi-acceptable for this one reason of the why it's not a whole food because it would be a whole leaf. But the application is quite limited, and it's not very versatile. It's also very bitter, which is why there's compounds derived from stevia like Reb-A, right, which is derived from the leaf, but it is a white powder that has no odor, By the time you take a green leaf into that white powder, it's quite significantly processed. And when you take something like an ear of corn and turn it into erythritol, we're talking about requiring like a Breaking Bad lab. So not a whole real food. 
right? That's my first answer. The next one would be that they provide a false flavor profile. So they're creating this excessively sweet taste, which only further perpetuates cravings for sweet. So when we consume non-caloric sweeteners that are hundreds times sweeter than sugar, this maintains that sterilized, dulled down American palate that seeks sweet as a flavor. And that really doesn't allow us to adjust our palate to appreciate the natural sweetness of a raw macadamia nut or of a bell pepper, right? So we want that palate change. We want to channel savory. And when we're tasting sweet, regardless of whether it's a whole food or whatnot, that's not going to help us to shift our palate. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I was recently visiting my mom and she'd bought the like, um, Birch Bender's Paleo Pancake Mix, the one that has the monk fruit in it, and I didn't realize it. I was like, sure, I'll try them. Because there's one um, without. There's one without, yeah. and I I didn't, you know, this is where reading your labels, even for dietitians, is so important. And I tasted it, and I was like, oh, it's got that, like, cloying aftertaste, and, you know, just couldn't even get through one of them. was not great. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a false flavor profile, right? You know, and then within that, the third reason why I hate non-caloric sweeteners is that that in itself creates a psychosomatic response. So that sweet taste actually evokes various physiological responses in the body. It signals that food or calories are arriving in the gut and it's non-caloric, right? That's why they're called that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't have any carbohydrate grams and the sweet taste creates from our tongue receptors and our gut lining receptors, like our glucagon-like peptide uh, 1, GLP-1, um, these respond to the sweet flavor and will have hormonal influence, which can impact different hormone released, including insulin, right? This can actually reduce our sensitivity to insulin. It can also cause hypoglycemic blood sugar drops, and it can impact unfavorably ghrelin. It can actually drive up ghrelin, which is that hunger hormone. It's the opposing hormone to leptin, right? So uh, we've seen in study after study that people that consume diet beverages or, you know, non-caloric sweetened foods tend to gain weight and overeat. And that's likely because of that mechanism of ghrelin. Got it. Okay. Awesome. And that's and just three. <laughs> that's only three. <laughs> I you swear there's more. more to this. <laughs> what about the yes. gut microbiome? What's that? All yes. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot of studies on the gut microbiome from the chemical created non-caloric sweeteners. So again, a lot of people want to give a free pass to some of the more quote unquote natural sugar alcohols are very disruptive. We make the jokes um, when we're at the conferences oh, about yeah. like, Woo, <laughs> watch out for the squirting stool um, because... <laughs> Right? Um, (laughs) Because sugar alcohols are not metabolized, so they're absorbed in the small intestine, and they carry as a sugar alcohol osmotic properties or water. Uh, So this can create really severe bloating and distension. It can create loose stool. It can create electrolyte imbalance in the body. And then on a microbiome level, separate to even the bowel formation and digestive process of sugar alcohols, a lot of non-caloric sweeteners, including stevia, the Reb-A in stevia has bacteria static properties. Um, And stevia in a study that I pulled for my book, had actually sterilized the microbiome slashing probiotic activity to 50% or greater. So that's quite significant. And again, all of these reasons can be independent, but you'll see that they stack. And then the last one is just that they're devoid of any nutritional value. So, you know, unlike 
some of the redeeming properties that we might see with incorporation of a whole food natural sweetener to balance out the flavor in your dish. Like for instance, maybe a mashed banana in 12 muffins. So you're getting a 12th of a banana in that recipe. You're actually going to get tryptophan to support your serotonin. You're actually going to get B vitamins to support your energy and your metabolism. You're actually going to get potassium to help to balance out your electrolytes. You're actually going to get soluble fiber to feed as a uh, prebiotic to your good gut microbiome. So not only are you not getting any benefit, but non-caloric sweeteners have actually been shown in many studies to, in some cases, deplete minerals, vitamins, and antioxidants. Okay. So a lot going on there. (laughs) I think just big picture. End of episode. (laughs) Right. Just mic drop. I think big picture though, the one that just makes the most sense in terms of, you know, what we talk about on the podcast all the time in our own food ethos and philosophy in our own homes um, is to eat real whole foods, period. Right. Um, So that kind of brings us to this concept of metabolic flexibility. So let's define that and, and give some examples maybe of how we use that. Sure. So this is the ability to live as a hybrid on both ketones and low or regulated glucose levels. As you expand your diet from a rigid classic ketogenic diet of, you know, 30 grams or less per day. So this idea of metabolic flexibility, and first, I guess, to to make known, because there are people that do keto that don't understand this, and there's people that are scared of keto that don't understand this. So just to say loud from the rooftop, when your body goes into a state of nutritional ketosis and your liver is going through beta oxidation and you're, you're, you're burning fat as fuel and you're producing ketones as a byproduct, when that metabolic process is occurring, you are not zeroing out your glucose levels, right? You are still running on glucose. It's just that you're not running on irregular or elevated glucose levels because a lot of the misinformation out there about your thyroid or your brain or other you know glands needing glucose for functionality, you're always going to have enough glucose for functionality via the process of gluconeogenesis. And we've talked about this on other episodes, the fact that your body can make glucose out of non-carbohydrate energy substrates. So that's what makes carbohydrates non-essential. Um, so that's important to recognize. Everyone's running as a hybrid, right? And you want to maintain that hybrid level so you can still have the magic of ketones, but maybe you expand your diet and that may actually enhance your body composition or your performance goals. Maybe that is going to enhance your outcomes on your hormone balance or, you know, it's really questioning why you got into a ketogenic diet in the first place and the the pros and cons of things to consider. But metabolic flexibility takes into account your body composition. So there's a utilization of glucose based on your tissue, your muscle. So the higher muscle you have in your body composition and the less fat, you're likely going to have more metabolic flexibility or more ability to consume a liberalized amount of carbs without kicking out of ketosis, right? And it also, on the other end of the spectrum, takes into account your metabolic handicap. Um, And so within that, what is your level of insulin resistance? Uh, Do you have, as a metabolic handicap, a genetic pathway uh, mutation like a glucose transporter type 1 genetic 
element. And then that person is going to have quite an inability to be metabolically flexible. You know, so we have to take into, everyone has unique entry points based on their genes, based on their uh, level of hormone balance, and based on their body composition. And then metabolic flexibility would take into account the composition of that meal that the food was, you know, the balance of that distribution within that sitting, as well as the activity factor of that individual within that day. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And and I would add to that, um, you know, duration of time you've been on keto and, and maybe that's more of like the insulin resistance piece of the puzzle, but this is definitely not something to consider like in your first, you know, six weeks of, of keto, um, but probably later on down the line, once you've become quote unquote fat adapted. Yeah, absolutely. And right, exactly. That that magic term of fat adaptation, usually I suggest exactly six to eight weeks of a tighter classic keto to really teach the body that fat is the preferred fuel until you start to liberalize that carb control. And I always recommend liberalizing, generally speaking, with vegetables first, because for some people, they have to restrict lower than 30 grams of carbs, again, based on that metabolic handicap or their body composition. If they have a lot of body fat and really a lack of substantial muscle tissue, then they may have to restrict even tighter. And some people we have to, we call it like snacking your way into keto, right? Where they can only have those two to three cups of leafy greens and we restrict other vegetables to like a total of a half cup of non-starchy vegetables a day to make sure that they're able to access their fat stores as fuel, staying hypocaloric, or that they're able to start to produce those ketone bodies by really wringing out that excess circulating insulin and glucose. Got it. So I think the important takeaway is depending on where you fall on the spectrum, you know, this may be appropriate now, this might not be appropriate until you're close to goal weight, but we'll get into it. Right. And for someone that has a genetic mutation, like a glucose uh, (laughs) transporter type one, never, right. Or someone that's doing this for epilepsy, probably not ever either. So it's really important that we all are looking at our entry point and our goals. Okay. So flexibility within the amount of carb intake and, you know, choices of types of carbs can create, you know, food freedom for sure. And, and, less of that perception of being super restricted by our diet. Um, but there are potentially other benefits to this as well. Yeah. And I think that this again comes back to the, the why you're doing keto, because sometimes we get into that myopic tunnel vision of like keto is the diet. So I need to do it. And it is this program. And again, these are my macros. I need to keep my carbs at five to 10% or less of my total intake. And that's it. Well, again, if your goal of doing keto was to optimize brain health, maybe now that you've become fat adapted, you want to prioritize strategic nutrients that boost your brain, maybe, or, or combat Alzheimer's disease, right? So maybe for you, because of the studies and, and the research on anthocyanins and you know the varied compounds and berries, it's more cost of benefit for you to have a cup and a half of berries a day um, or incorporate some of those antioxidant compounds. Maybe if you came in for the microbiome and you started to get really good outcomes, but your bacteria started to get thrifty and is feeding off of ketones, you want to lower the circulating amount of ketone bodies in your system. So, you know, if you were using like exogenous ketones, like a BHB product, we've seen in studies that candida can thrive off of ketones. 
bacteria and yeast and pathogen can thrive off of an excess of anything, right? So we also don't want the pendulum to swing so far the other way that we're so, so tight that we're trying to get our, our ketones as high as we can in the blood. And then that's working against us and creating this abundant fuel source that isn't being metabolized and is available for negative reasons in your body, right? So that's something to consider. Or maybe you've created some sterility. First, you use the keto diet to kill off that gut bacteria, but now maybe it's not excess ketones that's messing with your hustle, but maybe it's that your gut isn't getting the loving it would benefit from otherwise with getting prebiotic fibers. Uh, maybe we're talking about nutrient deficiencies. Maybe we're talking about you did this for hormone regulation. And since you went keto, you did reduce your estrogen dominance and your endometriosis is improved, but now your cycle is shorting, shortening and you're not ovulating, you know? So it's, it's really thinking about this as a holistic approach and questioning of where you started with keto, what results you got, where you are now, and how you want to evolve your diet to maintain the benefits and keep moving the needle further towards progress. Okay. So a lot of potential benefits and, you know, we talked quite a bit about this on our episode on carb cycling. So one to go back and listen to for sure, if you want to dig more in, um, I know we're going to get this question. It's like, Hmm, what's the best, um, what's the best way to do this for me is always the, the individual question. Like how should I personally incorporate this? And we can't give you a one size fits all answer for that, of course, but what's the best way to know, you know, what works for your body and how much is too much? I think the best way is journaling and listening to the feedback of your body because everyone is going to have a different experience based on the dining experience. You know, um, if you decided to loosen up on your metabolic flexibility and you've had a longstanding imbalanced relationship with food, or you've had food addiction tendencies, right? Or eating disordered behavior, and you try to expand metabolic flexibility and you roasted a whole pan of a starchy vegetable and you haven't had a starch in six months, you know, and you roasted a whole pan of Brady's rosemary smashed Yukon gold potatoes with coarse salt <laughs> and they're delicious, mm -hmm. right? It's like that might be a dangerous environment to dip into metabolic flexibility. Um, and so I think journaling and body feedback is really important. Um, I've noticed personally, as I've talked in many episodes, that as you guys know, gluten does not do well for me. I feel like there are razor blades going and scraping my belly. And corn is also not a good one. Corn is one that I like to tell myself I can do every now and then, but I always get mm -hmm. constipated and that's not fun for anyone. And I get cranky when I'm constipated and it kind of an annoys my day. I just feel bloated and uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, that's not one that I, I would recommend as far as, and that's that body feedback where I'd be like, okay, so maybe it wasn't that I went to 30 grams of carbs at that meal. Maybe it was because of the food choice. So you can start to collect qualitative data beyond just quantitative values. Uh, you know, a lot of you that want quantitative information, I, I, think you can absolutely use a blood keto meter. Um, I, I'll, I'll link in today's episode, the, you know, the keto mojo, which is what I use. Uh, you can track that data, but the question within blood ketones, which I think we're just starting to discuss in this, in this industry, if you will, is, uh, is that just what's circulating versus utilization, right? So like, when um, I, I love using like Danny Vega as a prime example of metabolic flexibility, right? Like he's just this huge ripped 
dude, right? I don't know how many pounds of muscle he has on his body, but probably more pounds of muscle than my entire body. Yeah, a lot. And <laughs> yeah, a lot. Um, and so, you know, I mean, he's done carb tests with a, a glucometer and a, um, you know, blood ketometer and is able to consume upwards of 300 grams of carbs and still produce ketones. And sometimes the morning after when his ketones are super high, like in the threes and fours, I wonder if that's the excess circulating ketones, you know, and not just, maybe that doesn't mean that his body's more efficiently making ketones, but maybe that's the ketones that his body couldn't take in because it was busy using his muscle cells to, to metabolize the glucose first. And then that was like the residual factor. Um, and, and so we're kind of in that world right now where, where we're all, I think a lot of the leaders in the, in the keto wellness world are saying that it's not about the number, like chasing ketones is it, you want, you want to go for your results, not the number on your ketone meter, because that may not be influential. We talk about how people that have been doing this for a really long time may have very, very, very low, like decimal levels of ketones in a meter. And it might be because their body's not overproducing because they're at a pretty good set point and they're regulating their metabolism. They're still using ketones as fuel, but they're not dumping excess in the blood. So food for thought there as far as monitoring ketones, but some people like that data as far as, uh, just, just, it, it's less anxiety. It's, it's tangible. It gives them information. So go on with your bad self. If that feels good, you can see that you're still making ketones after you liberalize your diet. That could be a tool, but I generally go to the old school glucose levels because glucose levels are going to give us both picture. So you could test on a glucometer, which you could do again through a keto mojo or whatever. Um, your postprandial is going to be two, one to two hours after the first bite of food. Classically, in like diabetic education, we look at two hours postprandial and then a fasting blood sugar read. So this would be influential because regardless of how much ketone you're using, keeping your blood sugar levels regulated would be the biggest feedback, I would say, based on your metabolic flexibility. So if you can consume, for instance, 35 to 50 grams of carbs at your evening meal, and two hours postprandial, your blood sugar is at 92. That's beautiful. If two hours postprandial, your blood sugar is at 140, that's looking diabetic. You got excess circulating glucose. So that's not a good thing. And that means that likely at that point, you've kicked yourself out of ketosis. Right. And then, you know, trending those numbers, whether you're doing ketones and glucose or just glucose, really trending those over a significant period of time um, to see, you know, what's actually happening in your body, how your sleep affects it, how your stress level affects them, how your food choices the night before affect them, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, data is all about the, the, Whenever people ask me, when's the best time to test my blood sugar? My answer is always another question. What are you looking to find out? <laughs> you know, like, are you looking to find out how your liver regulates your blood sugar while you sleep and how your cortisol is influencing your blood sugar with that dawn phenomenon in the morning? Take a fasted read in the morning. <laughs> are you looking at your metabolic flexibility after a meal? Take a postprandial read. So it's all about the, the question you're looking to get and understanding then how to best dig for that information. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So it's pretty wild and pretty cool to see, you know, that as keto is evolving in the community, we may start to make more of an extension into carbs and some of these otherwise, you know, off limit foods in terms of a black or white food list. I know I've seen people who've been pretty significantly zero 
carb or, or pretty much zero carb, um, like Danny as an example, start to incorporate some carb ups and, and play with his metabolic flexibility. So I think it's a really cool thing to see. Um, what other trends do you anticipate or what trends do you want to see as the keto diet and community evolves? So I think digging into the limitations of results and looking into deeper, more complex whys, um, addressing hormones, adrenals, micronutrients, you know, so we're starting to, okay, so now I'm able to use fat as fuel. I'm quote unquote fat adapted or I'm keto adapted. And now I'm in this kind of cruise control, but there's going to be blips in the radar that occur. Does this mean, again, going from my doctrine creates disconnect, right? Does, does this mean that I white knuckle and continue to forge on and just hope for my body to get back on it? Or do I need to adapt and change? And I think that this is where a lot of growth is happening. And this is where hopefully we can have that sustainability of the, the being able to empower people to use, again, the magic of ketones and all of the beauty that comes with that without driving imbalance or using that white knuckle effect to disconnect with the body. So understanding more functional approaches of how to nourish our weak points, if you will, I think is a, a really important thing to make this a sustainable lifestyle. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be this shock and awe, one size fits all, the keto diet, and it didn't work with air quotes, right? So why didn't it work? Because this is a natural metabolic process for your body. So I think that that's really important. It's not a radical jump into it weight loss diet. It's a natural process for your body and your body thrives when you can keep it producing some level of ketones. So that's really important. And then I think understanding, you know, how to use ketones favorably for your body and how to prevent dropping the process of ketosis completely, right? So it, it kind of carries that metabolic flexibility of like, where's your sweet spot and what do you use to, to regulate that and, and how do you pivot or adjust? And then I think what I want to see happen is, is within this conversation beyond more integration of functional medicine approaches on hormones, adrenals, thyroid, you name it, a, a shift to more whole real foods. So beyond the non-caloric sweeteners, I am so sick of corn fiber, maltodextrin, natural flavors, and you know anything that I call, as you know, a chemical shitstorm <laughs> that has the word keto on it and that makes people feel like in a convenience factor is the only safe thing when there's so many safe, whole, real foods out there. Yes. And as you mentioned, you know, personally having a reaction to corn, that's really obvious in your digestion. I have that too. <laughs> um, and sometimes we're together when we're like, well, we're having margaritas. We should really have a little bit more carbs. Corn's the most readily available and, you know, things just spiral from there. <laughs> And then I we have to know. just more relax and regulate and GI lining, but you know. Uh, my last one was I was at an amazing restaurant that I'm taking you to, Becky, next time you're up here. Um, it's called Pitchfork Pretty. Oh, it looked great. And it was amazing. And I actually happened to be, I was on day 20 of my cycle and uh, we ordered a beef tongue dish, which had uh, like, it was beautiful beef tongue with, it was non-starchy vegetable sides, like sauteed cabbage and something else in beef tallow and then maybe collard greens, I think. Oh, then there was a different dish with, oh, this was collard greens and uh, pork belly. 
And then there was another dish of like a snapper crudo, like a raw fish with snapper and something else, all easy, tight keto. And they brought me, I guess, because something came with a side of like a normal bread. They were like, oh, well, our chef wanted you to try this slice of buckwheat groat. Um, they, they make in-house, they sprout and soak and toast the buckwheats and grind them into this meal and blend it with an heirloom corn meal. And it was like this like slice of cornbread with buckwheat. So it's gluten-free and it had this miso cream butter. I mean, it was just super dreamy. <laughs> and I like had a bite and I was like, okay, this is divine intervention. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to carb cycle. <laughs> Here's this slice of magic on my plate that I didn't even know existed. And yeah, I even bought a slice to take home to Brady because it was like life-changing. And it was amazing, by the way. But nope, the next morning I had that feedback where I was mm-hmm. like, nope, nope. And why did you do it again every time? <laughs> so yeah, I think that um, corn is just one of those. When I run the MRT test, which is an inflammatory food panel that I love to use in clinic, and now we've been doing so many with you guys, uh, podcast listeners and social media followers and whatnot, um, it is a blood test that looks at 150 foods and chemicals and 170 now, sorry, 170 yeah. foods and chemicals. And it actually looks at in your blood, your level of inflammatory response to those compounds. So it's not like an LCAT test. It's not a um, IgG test, which is just looking at neutralized tagging. It is looking at an immunological inflammatory response to these 170 foods and chemicals. And I think less than 5% of the population whose results I've looked at has not been reactive to corn. And most of the time, corn is a huge red. And I can't tell you, I'm not going to shout out brand name, but I can't tell you how many of these people are keto people that have hit a roadblock that are taking BHB products that have corn derivatives in them that it's off the charts red and they stop that. Their blood ketones go down, duh, because they stopped using BHB, mm-hmm. but they also took out the inflammatory response to corn and they start melting on the scale. It's like magic. Yep. Corn always shows up on my MRT. Corn and soy, always, always. <laughs> so yep. all the more reason to you know, read your labels, clear out some of that crappy non-food keto product, whatever we want to call it. Um, and then let's, let's talk Allie about how we do these online lab reviews, just since you mentioned that and how someone would go about if they wanted to do the MRT test. Yeah. So all of the labs that I run in clinic are available on the website under labs and consults. It's a tab on AllieMillerRD.com. And I would say the most popular ones that we do as online reviews right now are probably the Neurohormone Complete Plus, which is the one that looks at sexual hormone, adrenals, and neurotransmitters. And that's for women. There's also the Neurohormone Complete for men. Um, But the most popular is for sure the MRT test and then the micronutrient test, I'd say, are next. So the MRT test, you get your results and it's like a GPS. It's like this bar graph that gives you green for non-reactive, yellow for moderate reactive, and red for highly reactive. And then Becky or I give you like a four to five paragraph review. And we also attach our in-clinic customized handout to help you navigate the results, teaching you about the length of time to avoid each ingredient, 
things to consider based on your specific reactions, supplement strategy, and really how to get started. And I think that that's one of those, I would say probably of all of the tests, the MRT test is probably the biggest like bang for your buck, quick return on investment of progress. And starting there versus being on a wait list to work with a functional medicine practitioner such as myself may start to yield amazing outcomes. You could also just start eating whole real foods to start, (laughs) but I'm not (laughs) kidding. Beyond corn, I mean, I see lettuce as a red. I've seen salmon. I've seen beef. So even healthy single ingredient foods could be inflammatory reactions based on your immune system. And that's the magic of the panel. Yeah. So that panel would be appropriate if you're dealing with digestive distress or a known inflammatory condition, or let's say you run your C-reactive protein and it comes back, you know, higher than 0.8, but at a three or above, even more important to go ahead and run it. Um, If you're dealing with a known autoimmune condition, or if you're just not getting results and you're doing everything else, quote unquote, right in your keto, it's often a, a place to look. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, even random anomaly like symptoms, I'm always like, well, let's just run the MRT and see if your body's angry at something. (laughs) Yep. Yep. For the zebras that like are not getting results anywhere else, it can often be a really good tool. Yeah. That's a great way to feel empowered with your food choice. So I think that's really helpful as well because a lot of these people have tried so many different applications. They've they've layered on AIP, they've tried carnivore, they've tried XYZ, and go figure, it might be something like pork that's allowed on all those plans that they're eating every single day in one form or another that's throwing off their hustle. Okay. Awesome. And that would be you know a, a great tool kind of on top of macros and all of those other things. So let's go back and talk a little bit about you know, establishing fluidity of your body's needs versus this really rigid macros based approach. Um, because, you know, in the end, you'll be able to um, make the benefits of benefits of ketosis available to more people. And this will be able to make the movement more widespread. Like, you know, there are great products out there like F-Bomb, for example. Um, and actually, before we even go into my question, let's have a quick word from our mid-roll sponsor for this episode. Yes. So you guys know I have mad love for F-Bomb. I met Ross and Kara at the first ever KetoCon, and I really felt like of all of the brands in the room, they were a true representative of what I believe to be the foundation of a keto diet whole real food ingredients that provide a delivery of fats to boost your brain, balance your hormones, and support a ketogenic lifestyle. So F-Bomb started off with packets, F-Bombs if you will, (laughs) fat bombs of high quality fat. Um, They started with a macadamia nut or a coconut based uh, base, and then they would incorporate things like pecans or other flavor enhancers, typically keeping only three, max five ingredients per pack. So we're talking like coconut with the meat intact with fiber and macadamia and uh, salt is a flavor, right? They also have premium oils. So MCT oil, olive oil, just to name a few. So this delivers quality whole food fats that are conveniently enjoyed for all. Let's talk, Becky, about how they've expanded and what other new snacks and products they have for everyone to taste. Yes. I just got home from long travels and depleted my whole reserve of the F-bomb nut butter packs and the oils, which I use constantly when I'm traveling. Um, But I came home to find their Keto Crunch and pork sticks um, in a really nice box that they sent over to me. The Keto Crunch are like a, a cheese crisp, and they're the best texture of 
um, cheese crisps that I've ever tasted. They're more crunchy. They use natural microbial enzymes versus additives like cellulose and nasty things like that. Um, And their pork sticks also have an amazing texture as well compared to some of the other you know, meat sticks and jerkies on the market that I joke, I'm like, this is kind of like a dog treat. Theirs is amazing. It's not like that at all. <laughs> yeah. I always say that their pork sticks are the most moist of any meat stick. Um, I know people don't really love that, that descriptive term, but it's true. They're amazing. Um, I love to put them in Stella's lunch and she does really well with them. And we trade off from her keto crunch uh, and uh, the meat stick. And then I'm always throwing an F-bomb in her lunch bag as well. It's so important to get healthy fats into our toddlers, our children, our teenagers, and ourselves because it provides grounding energy. So if you want your kid to do well on their performance tests and sit still and not be dealing with high energy peaks and energy crashes, fuel them up with fat. So go on over to dropanfbomb.com backslash Allie Miller RD. Again, that's dropanfbomb.com backslash Allie Miller RD. And you can use the code Allie Miller RD at checkout and you will save 15% on your first order. And I'm always posting all sorts of fun stuff with them. So go on over to dropanfbomb.com, Allie Miller RD. Awesome. So back to my question of, you know, finding fluidity within your body's needs versus this rigid macros only approach. Um, Let's talk about how that kind of opens the door and starts to make keto, you know, more widespread, maybe branching into the paleo community and, and beyond. Yeah. We don't have to be so uh, polarizing, I think, in our positioning. And I think the fluidity thing, it's important to comment on. I just want to kind of share personally with my experience. When I first started carb cycling for hormone balance, I was really rigid to the sense of like, I was tracking on my app and with my daisy and um, that's the basal thermometer that I used to aid with ovulation um, information and whatnot. So I was always really tight and I'd be like, oh, five days post ovulation, I need to carb up, do, 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 you know, and like marking it on my calendar and like planning because it was so foreign to my body and mind of like, what's my carb choice going to be? (laughs) It was like a, a very big experience. And now I'm kind of in just such a rhythm with my body where I'll notice like at that restaurant, I didn't know it was day 20 of my cycle, but I like looked at that buckwheat slice and often I would just be like, oh, that's so sweet. Like not interested because I just have zero desire. But I looked at it and like, I was like, that looks really good. And then I was like, why does that look really good? Check my hormones, day 20. Like, mm-hmm. go figure. There's a very intuitive relationship, I believe, once you start carb cycling for hormones that your body tells you. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I had another experience where I just started eating raw and filtered honey one night. And Brady was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I just really am craving raw and filtered honey because I think for that dinner, I had had like no carbs, you know, like a steak and whatever, some green vegetable. And, um, needless to say, you know, <laughs> the next day I was like, oh yeah, you know, looked at my hormones and I was like, oh, well I did a, a cyclical carb up that made sense, you know? So I think taking out the guilt, shame and the rigidity is really important and listening to our body. I think in the beginning, as we say often, you need to kind of first get your body back to a level of sensitivity that it can hear the whispers and the signals mm-hmm. of your system. So if you're running on mediocre and if you're running on again, back to this idea of like, if you're so metabolically handicapped that you're going to get glucose spikes and insulin irregularities, 
don't mess with the hustle. Just keep riding strong on tight keto. But if you are able to expand your food choice and live and still thrive with making ketones, this is likely a good thing. And, you know, likely being intuitive. I know, I noticed personally that whenever I consume more carbs, like a true carb up carb cycle, which is usually around 30 to 45 grams of carbs in that evening, that that next morning I can, I cannot even do a fat fast. I have to just do a naked fast because my body is full and that's that leptin reset. Now, if I just incorporate a moderate amount of carbs to my metabolic flexibility, I don't feel that fullness in the morning. So if I'm just having two tablespoons of sweet potato in my Brussels sprout hash and the rest of it's all protein and fat and I have garlic butter on my steak or on my salmon or whatnot, then I'm not going to get that same influx and that dynamic response like I would if I had carb cycled. Uh, so that's just more a difference of a carb cycle versus metabolic flexibility because in that state or that time when I just had that little bit of sweet potato, I likely never kicked myself out of keto. I still maintained running on blood ketones. And so I woke in a normal state where I was ready for my fatty coffee with my collagen and more of my normal ritual. Yeah, that's an important distinction, actually, of, of kind of removing the fear of using small amounts of, like you said, sweet potato, or I always get questions when I have like carrots in a pot roast or something. And I'm like, I ate like half of, you know, a small carrot, like we're going to be fine. Uh, but being able to yeah. use some of those foods, incorporate, you know, berries and things of that nature in small to moderate amounts without calling that like a true intentional carb, carb cycle, you know, where you kick yourself out. Yes. It's when you're carb cycling, you're looking for a light switch effect to get that insulinogenic leptin reset, right? And I'm not going to go deeper into that because we talk about that in a lot of episodes, but metabolic flexibility is navigating whole real foods and still maintaining in a hybridized state of producing ketones and glucose. So I hope that that kind of put some light. Why can I not say that on every episode? I try to get to like a mellow, shown some light, shed, shine some shed light. Some light. Shed. Shed. No. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm like thinking of a flashlight and I can't think of shine in the past tense. Shed some light on that concept. And that's funny too, because a lot of times clients will be like, yeah, I did a carb up. And I like look at their intake and I'm like, I don't think so, actually. I think you just mm -hmm. incorporated some meats with your goat cheese. <laughs> like, I think that from what I'm understanding, the portion you had was not. And, and the other element of I'll dine out with friends or like maybe someone else like in the industry or whatnot. And they'll be like, oh, uh, you know, I don't know how this restaurant does with like keto options, but <laughs> like, um, what makes it keto is how much carb I put in my mouth. Right. Like, right. <laughs> like that I mean, all I need it to be is gluten-free and I can navigate everything else. And chances are, I'm not going to order something differently because I might want experience of that flavor profile because to me, that's food freedom. If it's a whole real food and I'm eating seasonally and locally and moving my body, all I want is the ability to still continue to produce ketones. I don't want fear of a starchy vegetable or a seasonal fruit, like a grilled peach. I want to be able to experience whole real foods and honor and nourish my body. Yep. I think that's awesome and very empowering to a lot of people. And, and I think, you know, if you've been doing this for a while and you start to incorporate those things a little bit, you'll find that, you know, you can sit down and maybe forgot to ask for a sub for the roasted potatoes. You have one or two and leave the rest, you know, on your plates. Like you don't even need to go there. Oh, absolutely. And I think it takes that power away from carbs, like being this like 
pedestal, don't look, or you might <laughs> fall off of ketosis, like whoop, um, you know, type thing. And and again, it's that's what this I keep kind of referencing this pendulum swing of this this flexibility factor. And I think that it ultimately makes more food freedom, which means that we feel and we experience emotional and mental space that allows us to be more parasympathetic, which is likely good for everyone. Yep. 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 All right. And then in terms of another shift, um, what about chasing fat and kind of like this concept of we're keto, so we must load our coffee with like yeah. four to five tablespoons. I've seen that before in clients where they're just following kind of the generic bulletproof coffee. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's 500 of your calories in the morning. That just, nope, we're going to undo. Um, so this concept of, of chasing fat and putting fat on everything and doing like uh, fat bombs in between our meals and things of that nature. Right. So again, it's, it's getting out of that rigidity of like meeting your, meeting your macros. Whoop. I got to get my, you know, 90 plus grams of fat a day, because when I look at this wheel, that's what that looks like. Remember that if you have excess body fat and you're looking for body composition change, that's where you want your body to use fat as fuel primarily. So you probably want to kind of meet 50% of your fat threshold from diet and then allow the accessibility with that lowered insulin level from the carb control to allow your body to use body fat as fuel. Uh, so I am a fan of, of course, like nut butter packs like F-bomb. And I even make like fat bombs with butter and coconut oil and things like that. And if I find myself uh, really with a lack of appetite and needing nourishment, the homemade ones are really great. I use the nut butter ones quite regularly, but I'm not looking to do that at every meal. That's the difference, right? So it's like I can have a leaner protein at a sitting with just avocado and I don't need to also be dumping aioli on it, right? Or like drizzling um, fats on that. So so you can find a balanced within your day, which allows more a little bit more of almost a deficit of fat if you have body fat as fuel. Yep. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, let's unpack the way that you distribute macros in the anti-anxiety diet book and cookbook. Um, because I know a lot of people would say like your phase 1.5 or phase two is not keto. Yeah. I love it. So, you know, I, I, I do again, and as I'm saying, like, there's no numbers, be intuitive, of course, to give someone a plan or a program, you have to give them numbers mm -hmm. because it can't just be like, what feels good to you? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> in my phase one of the ketogenic protocol for the anti-anxiety diet, it's classic in the sense that it's, you know, zero to 10% macronutrients from carbs, 15 to 25% from protein, 65 to 75% from fat. And so that's generally looking like a max of 30 grams of carbs a day. I call phase 1.5 a gentle low carb approach. And I use this as an entry point for maybe a woman that's pregnant, a young child, a teen that's entering puberty, and we don't want to suppress or be too hormetic on them. Um, and then also as a maintenance mode, once you've become quote unquote fat adapted. And so I unpack this whole metabolic flexibility in my book as well. But phase 1.5 for me, instead of being zero to 10% calories from carbs is 10 to 20% from calories from carbs, 20 to 30% of calories from protein instead of uh, upwards of 25. And then fat comes down 55 to 65%. So it's still a fat dominant diet and it still will for many people yield 
ketones and production of ketones because it is likely going to still be such low carbohydrate based on their muscle mass and activity that they still are producing. But again, that goes into that world of already entering metabolic flexibility. And then phase two is a low glycemic protocol. And for most people, this will actually kick them out of ketosis, but not for the high intensity athletes and those that carry a lot of muscle mass. So this is going upwards of 20 to 30% of your calorie distribution from carbs, 25 to 35 from protein and 45 to 55 from fat. So it's about 10% variances in each kind of phase, if you will, of slowly liberalizing in carbs, in 5% increments liberalizing in protein, and then going down in 10% increments of fat. Okay. Awesome. I think that clarifies at least kind of in terms of of macros. Do you want to give an example of like what a phase 1.5, I guess a phase 1 versus phase 1.5 versus 2 would look like or or kind of what a few experiences would be? Yeah. So if we're just kind of like layering things on, a a breakfast of a phase one-er could be two eggs and two slices of bacon and maybe a handful of sprouts. And then a phase 1.5-er might include a half cup of berries with that, or they might include um, maybe within that a little bit more vegetable, like roasted Brussels sprouts or something like that. And then a phase two-er would have maybe like a, a full 15 grams of carbs in that breakfast right away of like a half cup of roasted sweet potato with the two eggs and the bacon and the sprouts. And then the, um, and they might take out, uh, one slice of that bacon to modify that fat exchange from the carb add on. Right. And then a lunch might look like, let's say if we're going from like a classic salad with salmon on it in a phase one, it's just going to be the six ounce piece of salmon, the salad dressing, which is, you know, olive oil, balsamic, maybe some rosemary, some mustard, whatever. So let's use the same dressing the whole way through. And then the uh, phase one could still have maybe some chopped olives or uh, some cut up cucumber or cherry tomato or something like that. Phase 1.5 might liberalize that a little bit further and may add on like some sliced in season pear, let's say, like three slices of pear that's chopped up in that salad with the, the salmon. And they might do maybe a different vinaigrette for that person because of the pear. I'd have to make like a ginger or something. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we'd add maybe a little bit of fruit there and um, maybe liberalize the uh, dressing recipe. And then in the phase two, they would have like an entire piece of fruit cut up there, or they might even have a third cup of chickpeas thrown in that salad or lentils or something like that in addition to that. And then for that evening meal, if we're talking about classic like steak and Brussels sprouts for phase one, we would be limiting the amount of Brussels sprouts based on the residual carbs and those other foods that they had throughout the day. So it might only be a third cup of Brussels sprouts with a little bit of onion sauteed in there. Uh, Phase 1.5 could have one whole cup of roasted Brussels sprouts with some sauteed onion in there. And phase 1.5 could even go a little bit further in another, um, you know, vegetable uh, with a little bit of fiber and carb, or it could be if they hadn't chose to cut the pear in their midday, they may be doing a little slice of starchy something there. And then the phase two would have a starch choice again, like a half cup or so of roasted, uh, maybe let's say butternut squash with those Brussels. And phase 1.5 might have had those two tablespoons instead of that full half cup. Okay. So that really helps, I think, to distinguish and and clarify kind of what you would add, what you would take away between these um, three phases. Um, I just want to play a little devil's advocate for a second 
and ask you why, if carbs are non-essential as a macronutrient, why should we consume them at all? And this is kind of in light of a recent um, social media debacle or, or snafu that someone made, um, <laughs> kind of had the, yes. the community up in a tizzy. But um, let's clarify this because I know there's a lot of kind of fear mongering on both sides of, you know, fear of carbs. And then there's also um, this fear that taking them away could be damaging to your body. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Let's do the full thing. <laughs> so I, I I would agree strongly that carbs are non-essential. And I don't believe that any, you know, really dynamic health hazard would occur from pulling carbs out. I do believe that, like I said, for cycling women, that there can be some hormonal implications that are sometimes unfavorable, especially for high stressed women and low body fat women. And that's where I do recommend, you know, that carb cycling during post-ovulation and potentially early onset of cycle. Um, but aside from that, I haven't seen a lot of a quote unquote need. So I think that it's something that is misunderstood in the, the keto fear mongering side of, again, the fact that they believe that when you're making ketones that you're making zero glucose. And I think that it's really important to note again, that you can make glucose from non-carbohydrate energy compounds like protein. And the body is going to self-regulate in a favorable way, generally speaking. Now, me liberalizing carbs going from this phase one, 1 1.5 to two, is so that more people, again, everyone's going to have a different season, a different snapshot. My phase 1.5 is like, generally speaking, 45 to, to 60 grams of total carbs a day, right? And then phase two goes like 60 to maybe 120. Um, so again, these phases and these variances within our definition of keto allow the opportunity for you to explore your body's capability and your body's flexibility and your body's flavor threshold and desire and profile and food freedom approaches where you still get clinical outcomes and balance. I think that it's always a win if you can remove processed products from your diet that you were relying on to keep a total macro suppressed by liberalizing with whole real foods if you can still maintain that same metabolic output. Awesome. I think that pretty much sums up <laughs> the entirety <laughs> of this episode, unless you have any other closing thought on metabolic flexibility. I think I, I think we got there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing again is like, there's no yes or no. Um, it's just, it's just listening and being intuitive to your body and eating to honor and nourish your body and stay fat fueled. And you'll figure out what works for you. You figure out how much testing you need to do to do that. And you know, as I love to say, food should be used to empower you. So use food as medicine to thrive, not to follow a protocol. And your body is the best guide of what your body needs. So if you liked today's episode, go on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Did you know, Becky, we're like over 300 five-star reviews. That's amazing. I, I was, was going to try to pull it up. I know, That's like so out amazing. of the blue. Oh my gosh. I know. More than... I know. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. Hey, thanks, guys. We have keep them coming. We have <laughs> we have lots. And then, um, yeah, if you always go over to Allie Miller RD, that's where we archive the episodes. Yep, 307 five star reviews. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So 
Yeah. Most recent one was relevant, up to date and revitalizing. Yeah. See, that was one worth writing. Um, <laughs> so thanks guys for your time and energy and being a part of the community. You can always go over to AllieMillerRD.com where we will put all the show notes with all the fun links. Um, also check out the getting started tab. Get started is where you can enter in when you don't know if you need to jump in with the Beat the Bloat Cleanse or the 12-Week Food is Medicine Ketosis Program where we really help to empower you with what these phases are and how you can use them for your body um, and whether you need to start with a lab or a supplement strategy or so much more. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food is medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.